0: There's so many stories from women who felt like they lost out on something when they were younger because they didn't have a sports bra that was comfortable, that was supportive of them, that they lost a piece of their athletic lives because of not having this garment.
1: You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about anti-fat bias, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Smith. Today, I am chatting with Christine Yu. Christine is an award-winning journalist whose work focuses on the intersection of sports science and women athletes. Her writing has appeared in Outside, The Washington Post, Time, and other publications. And we're here today to talk about her terrific new book, Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes. Friends, this book is fascinating. It is full of holy shit moments. Like, The fact that even though you've probably thought since middle school gym class that, oh, of course men are the faster, stronger athletes, women actually outperform men in ultramarathons and all the other like bananas endurance events that are arguably the hardest physical challenges that human beings can undertake. Christine also unpacks why sports science has ignored women's bodies for so long and the very real harm that this has caused. This is such an important episode. If you are a woman who exercises in any capacity, or if you are parenting a child athlete, there's a lot of really important information here. But even if neither of those categories apply to you, I promise this is such a good and fascinating and often enraging conversation. So here's Christine, but first a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect ShopCat-themed Georgie, and they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick-and-mortar bookstore, but it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Aubrey Gordon, including Christine Yu, who you'll hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code Fat Talk at checkout, to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community, to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores.
0: So I'm a journalist and I cover sports and science and health. And I'm the author of the book Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes, which just came out in May of this year. I live in Brooklyn with my husband and two kids. And yeah, I tend to report on women's sports and sports science and kind of this intersection of the two of them. And it's been lots of fun.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, we are here to talk about the new book, Up to Speed, which I was just saying to you off mic before we started recording, Like, it is so smart. It's so impeccably researched. And as I was reading it, I just kept being like, holy shit, holy shit. Like, Why don't people know this? Why is this not more widely known? So thank you. It is a real gift of a book.
0: Thank you. It means a lot coming from you knowing your work, but yeah, you're kind of like, what the heck kind of reaction <laughs> was really just, I mean, frankly, like what I felt like a lot of the times when I actually started to think about this a little bit more as a journalist and someone who reports on science and health all the time, mm-hmm. you read all these studies and you have these short deadlines and you're just like, I need a study. <laughs> like I need studies to yeah. look at and read. And it it made me feel like I wasn't doing my job. Like, how could I miss or not even think about the implications of all this? So I felt like my personal guilt (laughs) into this a lot.
1: I relate. I did a lot of fitness reporting in my women's magazines days. And I'm like, wow, we were just accepting some really limited science as fact and running with these premises that are not borne out by the research.
0: So on the one hand, we have been hearing so much about how, oh, medical research doesn't include women, blah, blah, blah. But for me, understanding this from a sports perspective and as someone who grew up playing sports and is still like fairly active, really trying to understand what that means for girls and women in the long term. Like, how does that affect you know, sure, athletic performance, but really like long-term athletic development, health, well-being. Mm-hmm. Because what I was uncovering were all of these issues that A, we don't talk about, we don't really understand, and we don't communicate to girls and women about, and yet they have these really long-term health repercussions on like bone health, on cardiovascular health, on like everything, mental <laughs> right? Health, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that we don't communicate that. And knowing that sports is such a growing part of a lot of people's lives or just physical activity. And we tout that so much, Mm -hmm. really trying to understand like, yeah, what are we missing here because we don't study women?
1: I want to get more into some of those specific implications you touched on. But before we get too deep into all of this, I do want to quickly address the question of gender inclusive language. You talk about it at the top of the book. And I just thought for our audience, it would be helpful here. I mean, You were really focused on the way science has underserved the biology of people assigned female at Mm -hmm. birth, but then also the broader cultural dismissal of women athletes, regardless of biology.
0: Yeah, it's really tricky, especially because both sports and science are two fields that are so predicated on the like sex and gender binary, right? In science, like we have like male specimens, female specimens, and they're very separate things. And similarly in sports, right? We have those two categories, particularly when we are thinking about not only women athletes, but, you know, thinking about trans athletes and Mm non-binary athletes. And how can we talk about this in a way that, you know, I wasn't... Excluding folks, but really trying to find language that was more inclusive. Right. Because when, again, when you think about sports and when you think about science, it very much prioritizes male bodies and cis men. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about how we can talk about this in a more inclusive way, because when we just focus on those cis men and male bodies, we do exclude not just people living in female bodies, but we do exclude all these other folks that are marginalized right, by sex and gender.
1: So two really big consequences of not studying a women, people assigned female at birth ever for all of science is number one, this really absurd misconception that too much exercise will damage a female body. Like literally people believing that your uterus will fall out, which is just, I I had Martinez Evans, who's 300 pounds and running on the podcast Mm -hmm. a few months ago and we were kind of joking about how that had been a barrier to women joining the marathon, but it's completely true. It was what happened. Talk us it's, through that one a little Yeah,
0: it's wild because, right, this is an idea that has existed since forever, yeah. right? Since the time of the ancient Greeks and the Romans that it wasn't feminine, right? Like it didn't match with femininity. It wasn't appropriate for women to enter into the athletic arena. In the cases in which women were allowed to compete, you know, the distances of races were shortened, right? We were handicapped in a way Mm -hmm. because of our fragile bodies. But for me, it really highlighted, again, this idea that women's roles were centered around our reproductive capacity, our ability to bear Children and carry children. And that was so central to everything that anything that could potentially damage that capacity was off limits, right? Like, we can't do that. And that just became an idea that was never really interrogated. Or actually, that's a lie. It was interrogated. And it was interrogated mostly by women scientists and doctors out there, you know, in like the 18th century and stuff, and who were looking at this and doing studies and saying, no, we're fine. You know, actually, we're doing great. (laughs) Actually, this doesn't affect menstrual cycles. This doesn't affect reproductive capacity. Uteruses are intact. Ovaries haven't burst but those women weren't taken seriously even though they were actually doing scientific studies right the men in power and the men who were leading all of these efforts were like yeah that's great we're still not we were like you're you.
1: biased by being a woman you couldn't do the objective science on your yeah, own body it's exactly wild wild i will say i did love the reference you made to one early scientist who did advise that noble women could exercise by yelling at their servants Mm. So problematic, clearly so problematic in so many ways we could unpack. Also, I mean, I do kind of love yelling about my new workout. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, this was a Spanish doctor. And it was, you know, he had put out one of these like first books on like exercise. And there was a specific chapter in there looking at exercise for women. But a lot of these observations came from his travels from Europe to Mexico. And so like he had stopped, I believe, like in the islands, maybe like Cuba or something like that. And he was like observing the nuns there. right, And they were like super healthy, right? It's like maybe because they're like not also no. reproducing and dying in childbirth. Yeah, or, not and risking their
1: lives to have babies every <laughs> exactly. two years.
0: But they were singing, right? So he believed that that was conducive to their health and, and also all the
1: exercise you need but
0: what was interesting he's also separated it out by class right so these upper women for upper women you can walk around after dinner and yell at your servants mm-hmm. and for women of lower class because they're working in the fields working in the house that's enough exercise that no yelling fine. from you lower class. No, no 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 we no. don't need to hear your Just, voice it's it only was, one
1: kind of yelling and no women yelling at men
0: obviously no 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 no. Yell no, at no. people servants yes,
1: yes. like I said, really problematic, but also I was like, I mean, I could get on board with yelling. I could see a yelling workout being like a big trend. Can you imagine? It totally would be. I would go to that class is all I'm saying, (laughs) that group fitness class. And then, so the other piece of this though, that's like so deeply ironic because on the one hand, you're absolutely right. All this research is about like, we have to protect fertility and the woman's Mm -hmm. body is so fragile and the uterus is like made of glass and we have to revere it. And then On the flip side, as women do enter sports in a bigger way, there becomes this narrative and this really dangerous misconception that exercising to the point that you no longer get your period is okay, normal, maybe even the goal of the whole thing.
0: It's such this contradiction, right? In the sense that it's almost as if women were going to participate in sports. Like we had to make our bodies more like men and... I feel like that's where a lot of this myth and misconception around like losing your menstrual cycle being a good thing, being a sign that you're really fit and are training really well. I feel like that's where that comes from. This idea that, like, if we are entering into this arena and you know, deemed appropriate to enter into this arena, like we almost have to shed right, like all of these markers of being in a female body. So like losing your menstrual cycle. Generally, having smaller boobs too, Mm -hmm. probably, right? There's less stuff bouncing around and distracting and all of that stuff. Having this super lean body for a lot of sports as well. I think there are a lot of really problematic things that go along with that.
1: I mean, I think the menstruation myth is especially problematic for teen athletes, obviously, Mm -hmm. because of how it can delay the onset and really mess with the puberty trajectory. What do you want parents and girls to understand about athletic performance during like the tween and teen years?
0: It's so hard, right? There's so much change that's going on and it's so awkward. But when you think about it, the amount of change that kids are going through at this period of time, right? It's like akin to when they're babies. And so what I want girls and their parents to know at this time, it's so alluring especially if you have a girl who is playing sports and seems to be doing well and we see this a lot in sports like say like cross-country running like they perform really well they run really fast and then they see these older girls once they do start to go through puberty their performance seems to drop off so Mm -hmm. the idea is like well if i just don't go through puberty Mm -hmm. then i can keep being fast But the idea is that like, this is what our bodies need to do. We need to go through puberty. We need to go through this maturation process in order to get to be an adult, right? Like Mm -hmm. in order to get to our adult form. So I think it's really important that like they understand and know that like this is critical. This is a critical piece of development. It's not just about fertility, right? This ties back to how we learn about our bodies as girls is Mm -hmm. we only learn about it in terms of like, reproduction and fertility and like how to not get pregnant and that type of thing. But we don't understand the like intricate things that our menstrual cycle does in our body and all those hormones that are involved in it and the impacts that it has throughout the body, right? In all these other systems and Mm -hmm. ways. As parents, it's like knowing it's a hard line. Anything is like going on with your period, like that's the hard line. Um, We're not going to risk
1: your future. Yeah,
0: exactly. And I feel like that's a really important message that parents need to know and understand that it's not normal.
1: And I think they need to know to push back because I think there has been a change in conversation and your book is a really big contribution to that. But I think you are likely to still encounter coaches in certain sports in running or gymnastics, things like that, where they're going to have this mindset of keeping you as small as possible is good. And parents need to know to push back against that, right?
0: Yeah, a thousand percent. I think it's also understanding that because the body changes so much during this period of time, of course, there's going to be this period of transition as girls get used to their new bodies. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense If we just think about athletic progression, maybe their athletic progression does stall or like seems to go backwards, but that's not the Mm. end of the world, right? But really just understanding this as a period of transition that we do have to acknowledge, we do have to be supportive of and patient with. But then once you get through to that other side, you know, things get better.
1: That seems like such an important reframing because, I mean, you talk in the book about how folks assigned male at birth, the puberty process is like more of a straight line towards athletic performance, right? Like you gain more muscle, you get taller and bigger and faster. And to understand that not all bodies are going to follow that trajectory, but why did we decide that that trajectory is the best trajectory for a body?
0: Yeah, I think it's largely because that's all we've known. Because Mm -hmm. You know, boys and men have largely been the ones that are participating in sports. Those are the ones we've studied. Those are the ones that we've like mythologized in a way. And that's the trajectory that we tend to look at and we see as standard, right? Right. And so we just compare girls and women to that same standard. I think it's also just, you know, our bias to want to see progression inch up in this like very linear way, right? That we're constantly just slightly improving, but not, I think to your point, right? Like not recognizing that we're humans. We don't, we're not an algebraic equation, right, right? right?
1: There's gonna be dips, and that's part of being a human. That's interesting. I mean, that really gets to the whole paradigm shift in terms of sports culture, right? I mm-hmm. mean, if it's always about winning, it's always about the next yeah. championship, it's about working towards that college scholarship, like none of that allows for this idea that there's going to be a few years where your performance dips, but it's all part of your overall growth.
0: I think we've lost sight of that a lot in sports over the years. I mean, definitely within the youth sports culture, and I know you write about this as well, but just that emphasis on early specialization and success and winning in like this focus on getting college scholarships and growing pro and you know all of our kids are going to be the next you know great Olympian right. superstar whoever but especially in that period of time of childhood and adolescence we lose sight of sports being just this amazing developmental tool and space to experiment and perform and really not only like get to know your own body but like develop your skills right mm-hmm. your kind of understanding of who you are and what you're capable of in a way that, you know, is kind of in a boundary, right? Like, or is Mm -hmm. like within a specific sphere that you can kind of practice and experiment in a way that I don't think you can in a lot of other ways. But we lose sight of that when we just focus on this end goal of like being the best.
1: And it does seem like there's a little bit of a shift happening. I mean, you have a lot of great stories in the book and I feel like the way someone like Simone Biles or mm. Abby Wambach has talked about their athletic mm-hmm. careers. Like, I think we're starting to see this narrative of like, it's not always just excellence, 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 you know, that yeah. there can be this more complicated route through and that that's also many opportunities for growth, but it's few and far between, right? And it also feels like yeah. it's no accident that we're hearing that narrative mostly from women athletes, <laughs> and that they're the ones speaking up about that.
0: Absolutely. Because it is vulnerable too, right? To be able to show this other side and to at least acknowledge that there are these like down points and Mm -hmm. these lulls and these deep trenches when you like are trying to work your crap out, right? And try to figure out how to work through this and keep going.
1: So I also want to spend some time on your very excellent chapter about diet and sports. This was so well done. I mean, what it really comes down to is It feels like nutritional science, athletic research, like all of this research has only just recently given women permission to eat Mm -hmm. as athletes and to eat enough to support their sport. And this feels really staggering to me that Mm -hmm. there has been this underfeeding of women athletes for so long.
0: Consistently. All the time. Right. And I think it's in part because of just general diet culture and our culture and society and these ridiculous expectations that we have or we place on girls and women in terms of what their bodies need to look like and then you have like on the sports performance side you have this idea that certain body types are the ideal athletic Mm -hmm. body types. so it's almost like no wonder that we create this perfect storm in a way for disordered eating and eating disorders and all this other problematic behaviors to kind of take root, especially because bodies are so central, obviously in sports and performance. And we focus so much on bodies and how they look, what your body composition is and Mm -hmm. and all of these different things, the shape of you and all of that. But yeah, it's wild to me that it's only been recently that, you know, we do acknowledge the fact like you just need to eat. And we talk so much about I think, nutrition and sports as this idea of like fueling your body, which I think was at first kind of helpful in the way of kind of reframing food within this context, like thinking about food as a way like your body needs fuel, like Mm -hmm. to be able to do all this stuff in order to kind of start to give folks, I think, a little bit more permission to eat or feel like they could eat what they needed. Right. But that, I think, even still creates this idea that there's a certain kind of fuel that you need to be eating in order to be an athlete, in order to fuel your body correctly, if that makes sense.
1: It's, again, mind-blowing, but makes sense that we had to first embrace the idea of eating, period, <laughs> as opposed to eating being the enemy. And you have so many heartbreaking stories from athletes in this chapter talking about feeling like they were so tapped out at the end of a practice that they like couldn't Function and that when they started eating enough, they were like, wow, it turns out, turns out. a 90 minute workout without a pro- The fact that they were performing at all yes. when they were being asked to do it while starving is ridiculous, like it's ridiculous what they were being asked to do. And then seeing that, yeah, the immediate and logical shift that if you feed yourself, you can perform better. But then from there, this idea of food as fuel can also become very limiting Yeah, because of course, athletes are human beings as well. And food is more than fuel for all of us.
0: And then I think, you know, it's really easy within sports and athletics to also look at food as almost a hack. In a way, Mm -hmm. like how can I as a way to like fine tune your performance? Oh, I need more iron. I mean, like very specific things that you need. And again, I think it dissociates food from like what it actually is. And yeah, I think that also just, again, makes it really ripe to, you know, encourage a lot of these behaviors that aren't always helpful or healthy.
1: You also do some amazing work in this chapter dissecting a couple of the modern big diet trends, Mm -hmm. intermittent fasting, keto, and you even look at some of the less extreme ones like the Mediterranean diet and show how they underserve athletes and especially women athletes. And I wondered if we could just spend a little time talking about your findings there because that felt super important to me.
0: So, you know, in the last several years, we've seen things like intermittent fasting and keto kind of pop up again, within athletic communities as this like way to make your body a better machine, right? Like, especially I think within endurance sports, it's this idea that like your body can run longer, or you can somehow create these efficiencies, if you will. But the body likes to be in homeostasis, it likes to be in balance. So, you know, anytime that the energy levels start to dip below, it starts to like send out these flares. Be like, wait a second, hold on, you know, are we going to be starving real soon? Because if so, I need to make some adjustments, yeah. you know, physiologically. So, the idea is that with a lot of these diets, you're actually end up with these long periods of, you know, essentially underfueling your body. So, I mean, intermittent fasting, right? You're not eating for anywhere between like eight to many
1: hours, hours,
0: right? And so you're leaving your body in this huge deficit of energy. And so it starts to like freak out and starts to shut down these non-essential systems. And the thing with women is that our bodies are much more sensitive to these downturns in nutrition. And it starts to kind of send up those flares a lot earlier. It starts to like, you know, make those physiological changes a lot earlier that can have repercussions on things like menstrual cycle and all the hormonal things that your body does. And then similarly with keto, while... You know this whole idea of eating a lot of fat and like very few carbs. You might seem like, oh, I'm really full. You know, I don't need to eat as much. But it's the same idea that you end up inadvertently underfeeling your body. But more importantly, and especially for women, by not eating carbs, it sends up those same flares to the body. Mm. So women's bodies, in particular, need carbohydrates in order to function well, in order to do all the things it does. And when we don't have carbs, again, the body starts to like send all these warning signs. And so, you know, we tend to see like intermittent fasting or keto quote unquote work in men because it seems like male bodies can get away with that underfeeling a little bit more than female bodies. But when women tend to try these diets, like they end up feeling... <laughs> unsurprisingly, really flat, really fatigued, yep. a yep. lot of brain fog. They don't see this performance boost. And then they wonder what they're doing wrong because all the podcasts, all the you know influencers say yeah. that I should be intermittent fasting. This is going to be how I'm going to lose weight. This is how I'm going to like cut time on my race. This is how I'm going to improve performance, improve body composition, all this stuff. But I'm not seeing that, like I'm gaining weight, I'm feeling flat, I'm not seeing all these other positive benefits. But it's because your body's essentially saying, like, like this isn't working for me.
1: Not an option I'm available for. Yeah. Just because it works for Peter Atiyah does not mean, and question mark, on works for these guys. That's yeah. the other thing I just want to interject. Like, you know, it might improve athletic performance. It doesn't mean it's not having... Other yes. consequences yes. on their mental health or their yeah. relationship with food and body. Like, there's all of that too. But it's fascinating to realize that specifically, if your goal is improving athletic performance, one of these diets is not going to deliver for you the way you've been told it will. That's yeah. And important. I think,
0: you know, especially the idea around carbs, like, I feel like carbs still have like a bad rap, right? Yeah. Like, you know, people are still really afraid to eat carbs. And you know, I just want folks to know, like, it's not a bad thing. Like, your
1: body actually needs it. It, yep. it wants it. The stories of these athletes who are living with these diets and the way they're struggling, like, it just yeah. sounds miserable. Well, and miserable.
0: it's not. Like, the sustainability of it, too, mm-hmm. right? Long term yeah. just sounds horrible.
1: Okay, we also have to talk about sports bras. Yes. I wear a 38G. Christine, why are all sports bras so bad? What there's going terrible. on? They're, They're terrible. terrible.
0: You know, I like will say, you know, I didn't really think a ton about this because like I'm small chested, right? Like, yeah, sure. I dealt with like the crappy like champion sports bras and like right. taking them off sweating and like all of this stuff. Getting but like, never count, really, I never really and like feel like I'm gonna dislocate my shoulder, but never really thought about it so much. But I think it's in part like one that the sports bra wasn't designed or invented until 1977, which is like I mean, it's years, like, absurd. Less than 50 years ago, yes. which is totally absurd. But because yeah. these women, you know, sewed together two jock straps and we're like, wait a second, we have <laughs> something here. But also because breasts were never really taken seriously. Because again, I feel like it's this female, you know, body part associated with female bodies. So why do we need to study that? Mm -hmm. It's largely associated with either nursing or sex, right? It's very sexualized. And we just have this, you know, dismissive view of breasts. It's like, they just move up or down. Like, why do we need to study them? Like, what does that have to do with athletic performance? But the fact is that as anyone who has breasts know, like, they have a lot to do with how we feel in our bodies when we move and we're more more physically active. It can be painful. It can cause like actually you changing your running gait so that like you pull your arms in closer. So you're not bouncing around so much. You might Mm -hmm. shorten your stride. So it has all of these repercussions, but we've never actually really studied it a lot. It really wasn't until like late 2000s, 2010s that scientists Actually, got the technology to be able to study like breast biomechanics in a lab. Because before, like, you know, the sensors that they had were like really big and bulky, like they couldn't put it like underneath the bra, you know, it's like
1: all of these things yeah. that that yes. made it really like, hard. Not gonna help someone run with yeah. the bra- like if you're putting big sensors on them as yeah, well. Like, exactly. And yeah. it's like
0: dragging down, so yeah. you're not capturing the movement actually, accurately. Yeah. yeah. But if you don't study the movement. And know what's going on, you can't actually design a garment that can accurately or effectively support and control that movement Mm -hmm. in a way that is comfortable. So I think that's in part why it's taken so long. I think sports bras are getting better. You know, they're not perfect by any means, but at least brands. And companies are now starting to include this type of research in their research and design process and their product design process so that they can really understand what's going on. And, you know, we're testing it on a lot more people and people of different sizes, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times it has always been the very traditional, straight size, thin, lean, you know, women who are trying this stuff out. But now we're seeing that they're starting to expand that as well.
1: And it is, a, I mean, it is just a fundamental barrier. I don't think about running as a sport. I feel like exploring because, for many reasons, but I would say the at least second, prior, along with like had a disordered relationship with it, number two yeah. is <laughs> figuring out a sports bra is an exhausting process. Yeah. And I've figured out what works for lower impact, you know, mm-hmm. like strength training, yoga, like even a hit class. Like I have bras that can work for that, but the idea of like a sustained I mean it's always that trade-off of if it provides enough support you're straight jacketed into it and mm-hmm. it's super uncomfortable and yeah that sweet spot of comfort and support is still a unicorn in the larger sizes especially well and then a lot of
0: the women that I spoke with like not all of them were included in the book but just there's so many stories from women who felt like they lost out on something when they were younger because they didn't have a sports bra that was comfortable that was supportive of them that they lost a piece of their athletic lives because of not having this garment right like it is so essential that we don't think about it and I think also when we think about the number of girls that also drop out of sport during adolescence I feel like this is a big piece of it too absolutely whether it's access to sports bra just the money of it Mm -hmm. right or just not finding one that that fits well
1: because the ones that do work are quite expensive. I mean, so
0: expensive.
1: And if you're a parent buying clothes for a kid who might outgrow it in six months or, you know, yeah. just spend $70 on a sports bra is going to be a real barrier for folks. It's a fascinating history. And there was a couple of brands. I mean, you talked about Lululemon improving the technology. They are not fully size inclusive. Yep. But for smaller folks, definitely sounds like one to explore. And Bloom Bras, I think, is the other brand you mentioned that is yeah. doing more size inclusivity. I mean, there is so much in the book. We could talk about it for hours. Is there anything we haven't hit on that you feel like is a a really important aspect of this whole conversation?
0: Yeah, I think that we also see this a lot as women age. So kind of in what I'm calling mature adulthood. Love it. <laughs> so,
1: Love it. Ready to be a mature who, adult. In
0: my yeah. like, you know, I guess officially late 40s now. But like when we think about like the menopause transition. And I know, you know, menopause is like the hot topic now, but in similar ways, it's just this, (laughs) literally this black hole of information and research in which women were just left to kind of figure it out themselves, right? It's like, oh, that sucks. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, you're not fertile anymore. So why do we need to pay attention to you? Yeah. Like who cares that like you're still gonna spend a good chunk of your life in this period of time? Who cares that you suffer these tremendously debilitating symptoms that affect quality of life and you know mental health and all of these things? Good luck, right?
1: Yeah. And Have I, fun with this new body that is confusing yeah. and impacting the things you love to do in ways that we can't explain. And I think especially for
0: women who have been active or have been athletes, I'm not even talking about, you know, at any sort of like professional or competitive level, but, you know, even for someone like myself, right, like being physically active has been a big part of my life and my identity. And it's really disorienting coming into this period of time right now when your body is shifting and changing in so many ways. You feel like you have no resources or no idea or recourse, frankly, of what to do. And yeah, that's, this is like a period of time where it's just, it's hard. And Mm -hmm. I think people are starting to pay more attention to it. And we're trying to like figure out some of the stuff, but I also worry at the same time because it also feels very ripe for like the whole diet culture thing where we're selling supplements and diets and uh, serums and (laughs) all this other stuff for women to use to fit into this traditional idea of like what we should look like and should be like.
1: Well, this is what we see over and over is when science doesn't include women, when mainstream medicine doesn't include women, what fills the gap is diet culture. I mean, because you're left out of the mainstream work on this, and yet you're still struggling with the things you're struggling with. And so who's there for you? Someone with a bunch of weird supplements, someone with a cool restrictive diet plan, like some celebrity claiming this solved her hot flashes. Like it makes total sense that we are vulnerable. Yeah, no, it absolutely
0: makes sense that these things are cropping up because I think a lot of us are just really hungry for information and some sort of guidance as to like what in the world is going on. Mm -hmm. The piece of, you know, message that I hope that the book kind of helps to get across too is this idea that we haven't really been taught about our bodies or encouraged to really become body literate. And so what I hope is just encouraging folks to pay more attention to yourself and what's going on in your body and tuning into that and understanding that, right? It's like, you don't necessarily need like a cycle syncing plan right. for your workouts and stuff like that, but you do need to kind of understand like, well, yeah, what is my experience through my menstrual cycle at these different phases? Because maybe that does explain just how I feel. So I'm not constantly blaming myself for feeling right. lazy or fat or, or flat or yeah. you know not able to complete my workout, but maybe it is because yeah, every third week of my cycle, I feel like this. So maybe it is my hormones. But just understanding that because like this is our physiology, you know, if you are in a female body, like this is part of the physiology and we need to appreciate that and understand that in the same way that we, you know, may think about nutrition. We may think about like cardiovascular fitness and all of these other
1: aspects. The thing I kept thinking as I was reading the book was how much we have defined our bodies according to this standard it simply does not apply. And it is, as we were talking about this standard related to male bodies, the male body trajectory, this whole culture of success and what success looks like, and that it's always linear and, you know, straightforward. And, you know, you just think of the guilt that people feel when they skip workouts yeah. or that, you know, the way you feel like, oh, well, but if I didn't, work out for 45 minutes it doesn't count if it was only 20 yeah. minutes that's not good enough or you know my pace was slow so this was a bad word like all the ways we punish ourselves for not matching up to this all or nothing mentality when it's clear that the science we do have is showing that does not serve our bodies in any way yeah so I appreciate you yeah walking us through that and making that so clear and so evidence-based it's really helpful
0: Yeah, no, it was really a lot for me just like trying to understand like, whoa, who is making the rules? Right. And like, do we need to listen to them? And understanding those underlying systems that like props all of this up. Because, again, like I was saying in the beginning, like, I didn't really think about this, you know, as a journalist, like, I didn't really think about kind of all these blind spots that have been just built into the system, and that you kind of just take for granted not question. And so, yeah, my hope is that, you know, we start to take just a little bit more of a critical eye to some of these issues.
1: Yeah. It's so important. And the book is so empowering. So thank you for putting it out there. It's really great. Thank you. So, Christine, what is your better today?
0: So I actually have two. Great. So we love a lot of better. (laughs) (laughs) My first one is Afternoon Naps. Huge proponent of Afternoon Naps. Yes. I mean, also you know, a perk of working from home, but (laughs) like the afternoon naps have just been really like life-giving lately. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And then the other one is I went to a conference over the summer and one of the things in the goodie bag was a sweatshirt that they gave us. And, you know, it was a champion sweatshirt. But since it was summer, I never got a chance to wear it. And so now since the weather is starting to get a little Mm -hmm. cooler here in New York, I'm wearing this like champion sweatshirt with a nice like fuzzy inside, like the brand new sweatshirt fuzzy. It's like fantastic. I've probably worn it for way too long without washing it because (laughs) I don't want the fuzz to go away.
1: New Sweatshirt Fuzz is a specific, and it does wear out after you start washing it. But yeah, New Sweatshirt Fuzz is a great better. That is extremely delightful. And a nap in your cozy sweatshirt. Mm. I'm loving that whole (laughs) afternoon for you. My Better is a book that I'm almost finished. I'm listening to it as an audiobook. It's kind of an old recommendation because I think it made a splash a few years ago. But if you guys haven't read When Women Were Dragons by Kelly Barnhill, Mm. it is fantastic. It is... I don't know what the genre is called feminist sci fi. It's like kind of in the tradition of a handmaid's tale. Yeah. Meets lessons in chemistry plus dragons, I Amazing. would describe it as. And it's, yeah, it's set in the 1950s. And the premise is that these women transform into dragons at critical junctures in their lives and often in response to bullshit from the patriarchy. And it tells the story of this one family in particular and how they've like tried to cover it up and et cetera, et cetera. and it actually intersects really nicely with your book because there are a lot of moments where the main character is someone who's like really great at math and science and trying to pursue that and yet you know in the 1950s and in the world of this book it's just like not at all allowed for girls to do it and people keep saying to her like but you'll make the boys feel bad. Like, how mm. do you think the boys feel when you're getting such good grades and you don't even seem to be working that hard and you're top of the class. And so they're like making her help and tutor the boys <gasps> who are struggling because she's good at it, but they don't want the boys to feel bad. And I just thought like, yeah, I think a similar things happened in sports for a long time.
0: That sounds fascinating.
1: It's a really fun read. I mean, I know not everyone's into sci-fi and dragons. If you are, you will love it. If you aren't, I'm like a lukewarm and sci-fi person. It's one of those that like crosses genres really nicely and is still, it's just a really fun read. Well, Christine, this was great. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is fantastic. I've been looking forward to this.
1: Oh, same. Why don't you tell listeners where we can follow you and how we can support your work?
0: Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at CYU888 and my website, which is christinemu.com. And from there, there are links to all the other things and newsletter and all of that stuff.
1: Perfect. We will link to all of that in the show notes. And yeah, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. Please also leave us a rating or review if you can. Just scroll down until you see the stars and tap and write us a little message. That really helps the podcast grow. And consider a paid subscription to the Burt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks, and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more by clicking the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia SoulSmith. You can follow me on Instagram at v underscore Sol Smith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting Anti-Diet Body Liberation Journalism.